0: Whether you're a person of faith or whether you'd say you're not a person of faith, I think that that deconstruction process and evaluating process and questioning process is tremendously helpful.
1: Welcome to another episode of Holy Heretics, Losing Religion and Finding Jesus from the Sophia Society. We are your hosts, Melanie.
2: And Gary Allen.
1: And today we have the privilege of chatting with someone whose story we have been curious to hear for a while now. We are joined today by the one and only Josh Harris. So that is right. We are talking to the Josh Harris, the original face of purity culture, but we're going to hear his story today. And it's about so much more than what we know him for. In his own words, he spent the first 40 years of his life promoting what he now describes as narrow, controlling, fear-based religion, and today he advocates for people's freedom to change, grow, and walk away from systems and beliefs that no longer fit them, and he wants to see religious and non-religious communities healthier. And he compares himself to the fictional character Benjamin Button, who lived a backward life. Uh, He became a best-selling author at age 21. The lead pastor of a megachurch at age 30. And then only at age 40 did he attend a graduate school of theology. Throughout his whole career, he's written books, spoken at TEDx, and even made a documentary film. And now he runs the creative agency Clear and Loud, which creates marketing content and websites for businesses. And that is quite the bio. <laughs> so welcome, Josh. Thanks for being here.
0: Oh, it's good to good to be with you. Thanks for thanks for inviting me into the conversation.
2: So, Josh, we are honored to have you, and you know, I, I have to say, I really can't imagine what it must have been like to to live your life, and even your marriage and your faith out in public for so long. Um, and so, for for some of our listeners who may have been kind of existing under a COVID rock over the last several years. Um, you've really, uh, completely recanted, um, a lot of things in your book. I kissed dating goodbye and, and by recanted, I don't just mean saying, Hey, I wish I hadn't have said that, but you've gone kind of a further step, uh, to, to tell your publishers to permanently stop selling your book. If I, if I, if I have that correct. And, and then you've also faced a lot of the, the people and the movement that, um, potentially been harmed by your ideas. So I, I want to start by just saying, I completely applaud you for that. I, I applaud you for the humility and the integrity it took to not only face your critics and answer some questions about purity culture, but also to step away from some of the ideas that actually made you famous in Christendom. Um, we we don't see that much. Um, I don't know that we we see it hardly at all, especially, in the Christian in, in the Christian world, where we we are so quick to defend things, so maybe can you just tell us what the catalyst was, or maybe the turning point for walking away from some of the ideology that really made you famous in the first place?
0: Well, I have to start by saying that it it really came way too late, mm-hmm. and I know that um, you know the apologies and the unpublishing of books uh, doesn't help people who. Were influenced by, shaped by the ideas in my writing and, and teaching. So, I I carry that with me, and it's something that uh, you know fills me with regret. And as I interact with different people and hear their stories, uh, still feel a lot of sadness around that. So I, I I think it's important to say that. And I also think that um, you know the the process or the catalyst of of changing my thinking in different ways was a. A long and bumpy journey. You know, it mm-hmm. it wasn't um it wasn't this like noble process of you know being presented with facts and changing my mind and those types of things. It was it was agonizing. I was scared along the way. I didn't want to along the way. I wanted to run from the process. Um, there were moments that um, things got pushed into kind of a more public. Sphere and that kind of helped me to keep going forward, even though I wanted to to turn around and run and, and hide from the process. So I'm really grateful for um, having you know changed my thinking. I'm really grateful that I've stepped away from that, but I also just have to be honest that it was a really messy process. <laughs> um, so I, I, I guess the the answer to your question about the catalyst is just that it really began when things began to fall apart. Over you know ten plus years ago, in the church I pastored, uh, we started to see as a leadership team that our leadership had created an environment that was highly legalistic, highly controlling, a culture where people felt like if they messed up, they'd be rejected. We talked about grace. We talked about the gospel being central, but the reality was that it was it was not like that in practice in many ways. And that was the first time I started, you know, basically saying, "Wait a second, I think my my book is part of this too." <laughs> wow. And and long, you know, story short, the church ended up going through massive disruption, crisis, church split, denominational split, lawsuit uh, about reporting sexual abuse. Um, I saw that I had made huge mistakes as a leader. Um, was very disillusioned with myself, very disillusioned with the whole, you know, kind of church structure that I was a part of, and ended up moving across the continent to Canada and to Vancouver, BC, to go to a graduate school of theology, which was my first time pursuing um, formal education. So that tells you a lot about my hmm. uh, <laughs> my background and so on. But that was really the beginning of things beginning to to unravel for me.
1: Hmm. I remember seeing your post when you went public with all of this. Um, and if I remember correctly, you even mentioned not being really sure about Christianity anymore. So I'm just curious, beyond just like questioning your book, what what was going on internally for you at the time or what part of um Starting to question the legalism and even purity culture made you then start questioning your faith in general, uh, or was that just a totally separate thing?
0: Well, I think it was all very tied together. the The post that you're talking about was three plus years after I moved out to um, go to this graduate school of theology. So there's there's a lot that unfolded in that three years. I realized I didn't want to be a pastor anymore in that three years. I recognized that there were so many different ways of Christian faith being expressed. Uh, The other thing that was happening during those three years is that Trump uh, ran for president, won the presidency. I began to see ways in which the brand of Christianity that I had been a part of and had promoted was completely in bed. With that version of republicanism and and politics. And there just were so many levels at which I um felt like I I didn't fit anymore in the in the faith that I had been a part of. And and I, you know, it's it's not, I'm not trying to blame my um my shift in faith on Trump, um, but there's a sense in which everything that I tried to engage with spiritually just reminded me of things that had very negative connotations. you know going even going into a church building and being in a worship service reminded me of all of the church drama, the power struggles, the politics that took place there. I I, I basically just got to this place where all I could see when it came to Christianity where all of the human, um, you know the machinations of of power and mm. greed and all those kinds of things, and at the same time, I was going around the country talking to people who had been hurt by my book, hearing their stories, hearing about the effects of purity culture, which my book had really helped to promote, and and then uh, on a personal level, things were unraveling in my in my marriage, and so all these things combined brought me to this place where eventually, you know. My ex-wife and I decided to um, end our marriage. We have a, a good friendship, and we're co-parenting our amazing kids. Mm-hmm. But we reached this point where we made that decision, and that decision was not, you know, in line with everything that I'd grown up believing about faith. I didn't feel the same way about um, my LGBTQ friends, mm-hmm. and I just reached this point where it was like, you know what, I. Do not want to try to defend explain justify myself anymore and essentially just came out and said look guys I'm not at the same place I really just wanted to be left alone by mm. Christianity <laughs> and I still feel that to a, a certain extent um but that that's the moment that you're describing melanie mm-hmm. of me coming out and just saying I'm not at the same place I I don't want to be held to, this, these same standards, I'm I'm not believing or living them anymore. I don't want there to be this huge gap between what people perceive me and think that I am and what I what I actually am.
1: So, did they leave you alone after that?
0: Well, you know, affirming um, LGBTQ people is a great way for to get. <laughs> evangelicals huh. to leave you alone. Right. And Gosh. they all and they all assumed because I I marched in a gay pride parade, they all assumed that I was gay. That's the fastest way for people mm-hmm. to oh, you, for man. Christians to leave you alone because then they just completely write you off. It's like, "Oh, that's the narrative." Right. So right, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. yeah, in a in a wonderful way they have left me alone. <laughs> hmm.
2: Well, I think what you just described is is a lot of the the story that so many of us are living right now in terms of looking at a faith that we've inherited. That looks nothing like its founder, and you know it's something that that I'm wrestling with, uh, personally. Is how how do I um, continue to pursue Jesus, the historical Jesus, while leaving behind not only just the institutional church, but but in many ways, almost everything that makes up the sort of industrial complex of evangelicalism. So. Mm-hmm. I think you're you're probably uh, your journey started a lot earlier than some of ours, but we're we're following behind you. and i I want to kind of come back to your book. Um, it really scratched an itch within evangelicalism, which I think you've alluded to already, which is to provide very simple legalistic answers and kind of binary framework for, Things that are incredibly actually complex, like like mm. I don't know, sexuality or same sex attraction, and when we look at human sexuality or or gender or a healthy sexual ethic, it, it's it's incredibly complex. Even even if you don't believe in Christianity, so how would you describe your view of sexuality today as it relates to um, being different from that courtship or that purity model that you espoused, you know, 20 odd years ago.
0: Yeah, I think, um, I think now I would view sexuality between consenting adults as this beautiful human natural thing that is to be celebrated and enjoyed. And as long as people are, um, enjoying themselves, then it's not none of my business. Um, <laughs> So I, I think that's the kind of most basic uh, expression of of how I feel. It, I think it's difficult for people that are, are not or were not in that moment in time in a very specific subset of Christianity to understand how all encompassing the ideas about virginity and sexuality were um, for people, that, you, you know, who were young, young young people who were. Dealing with their own, you know, natural sexual desires, being taught and having this issue emphasized to such an extent right. that it was just marked by a lot of fear, uh, a lot of um, pain, and I would say, a lot of hiding of, you know, natural things having no mm. no place in a person's life, and that that leads to, I think, damage, and I think it leads to very unhealthy sexual behavior.
1: Hmm. So, Josh, we recently did a couple episodes on the idea of purity within the church and kind of how it's this whole who's holy enough to get God's grace litmus test kind of thing. Um, But then we also spent some time talking specifically about purity culture and its effects. And I shared some of my experience as a woman who grew up in purity culture And what's crazy about my story is even though um, I was very much in that I kiss dating goodbye world, I actually never read the book. (laughs) I somehow got away. Well, my older sister did. And then I kind of weaseled my way out of it. Um, And I uh, kind of walked away from Christianity for a while. And when I came back, I, I was at this point of like, okay, I need to like rethink how I think of relationships and dating and all that. And I wasn't like, oh, I I want to court people now, but I was like, I need to like reorient my mind. And one of the books I did end up reading then was um, one of your other books called, I think it was called Not Even a Hint at the mm-hmm. time, but I think That's it right. got retitled later. Um, and that one I really kind of jumped on board hard with because, like, the idea at least that I picked up was like, I just want to make God happy, and the way I can do that is by following all these rules and making sure I don't make my Christian brothers stumble and all that kind of stuff. Um, So most people talk about your I Kiss Dating Goodbye book, but I'm just curious to know how you feel about that, the not even a hint book now, and even what you might say to someone who did read that one and took it all to heart, or even maybe to someone who still kind of tries to live by those principles now.
0: Well, the short answer is, I unpublished that book too. Um, <laughs> I I think that um, it that is just a, a continuation of a lot of the same ideas with a hyper focus on the issue of lust and sexual desire in trying to be helpful in writing out of my own struggle with with lust and and so on. Um, that book was this attempt to express God's grace and communicate that he forgives and that he can enable you to obey and so on but the overall i think effect of it is to again put a hyper focus on something so that people are so preoccupied with how they're doing in that area whether or not they're struggling whether they're causing someone else to struggle and again i just it creates so much weirdness mm. it creates um a lot of I think, undue tension and um, guilt and shame. Mm. And um, so I I just cringe when I think of of that particular book.
2: Mm. I want to kind of jump in there because I think you said something really critical in terms of the the hypervigilance and the focus on sexuality that the church played for all of us growing up. And we referenced this in an earlier podcast. Can you imagine what the church would look like today? If there would have been room for other conversations, you know, if, if there would have been room to talk about poverty or racism or nationalism or, God forbid, capitalism. But but none of those conversations happened for so many of us because the it's only true. thing we talked about was, you know, are you keeping yourself pure? Did you <laughs> masturbate? Um, how, how how much you know porn did you look at? How far did you go with your girlfriend or boyfriend? And it's it, true. I, it, it's sad to me because we have an uh, an entire generation of malformed Christians that were so focused on sex. We just we let all these other problems that Jesus actually talked about. <laughs> uh, we just kind of dropped those. So. Uh, That's Mm. a, that's an incredible point you just made.
1: Mm. Yeah. And another aspect of your experience that I, I, I haven't ever heard anyone talk about is the fact that you were, you were 21 years old when you first got published. And then at the age of 21, you went from no one. You were just a, a young man trying to figure out how do I live out these things that I've been taught by the church? And then you were catapulted to, you know, appearing on all sorts of TV shows and book signings. And, you know, you you became a celebrity at the age of 21 years old. And Gary Allen and I have talked about this before. I, for one, am very glad that things I thought at the age of 21 years old were not published for the whole world to see, because I would be very ashamed, I'm sure, of what I thought was truth and good and whatever back then. Um, but I think one of the aspects that's really frustrating about your story is how the older and wiser Christians treated you. Um, I I feel like um, instead of them coming alongside you and saying, like, OK, I love your ideas. Let's let's talk them out. Let's let's add some wisdom to your youthful passion. I think they just like. We're like, oh, he's saying all the things we want him to say. And so then they just like threw you to the wolves almost. Um, And maybe that's just like how it appeared from the outside looking in. But I actually feel like I see this happening a lot now, but maybe even worse because of things like YouTube and TikTok. Mm -hmm. So we have like super young people. They go viral. And now all of a sudden they are seen as these authorities on christian dating or uh, relationships or sexuality um and they're like they're even younger than you were mm-hmm. um and so looking back do you do you wish that things had happened differently with how your whole story unfolded or do you see warning signs happening today or like how do, how do you wish we would treat young people now um who who come in like, I got all the answers. (laughs) How do you think it would be, it would be good for us to handle something like that?
0: Well, I think it's important for me to acknowledge that I I don't think I was a, a victim in the sense that people were propping me up or, you know, forcing me to do something I didn't want to do. I wanted all of that. I wanted (laughs) to, um, influence people. I wanted to be, the next Billy Graham, mm. um, I had a platform at the time before the book was written because of the homeschool community. Mm. So I was publishing a magazine and traveling around the country, you know, speaking at conferences and and so on, which is part of why I got the the book contract, you know, to begin with. So there's a lot of the homeschool subculture being this um, this place where those ideas were were percolating and which then spilled over into the broader Christian culture that Mm -hmm. I think people don't always understand. The reality is, is that the older generation was teaching a lot of the components of this. In other words, Josh McDowell making a huge focus on saving sex for marriage, the Southern Baptist Convention, True Love Waits, um, Elizabeth Elliot, Passion and Purity, uh, challenging the the ideas of the of the you know typical romantic scene in the world and those types of ideas, a lot of that came together. I I popularized some of those things. I popularized mm-hmm. the ideas within homeschooling, which were based on family involvement, courtship. It was basically the romantic version of homeschooling. You know, let's keep our kids away from the public school. Let's keep our kids away from the you know from public dating, let's do courtship, <laughs> let's do betrothal, so my book was actually in those circles was viewed as the more liberal progressive communication about oh, wow. dating um wow. which again, you have to be in those worlds to under for even that to make sense um but I was chasing after all that, in other words, I wanted to be um I wanted to be famous for Jesus, you know I wanted mm. to be. Uh, a leader. I wanted to make a difference in my generation. Um, I think there were a, a number of adults at the time who thought my book was stupid. I think they, you know, I, I know of pastors and, you know, parents and different people who tried to communicate, hey, this is this is backwards. Like it's one thing to say don't have sex before marriage. This guy's taking this way too far. So they were communicating those types of things. But I think what we have to recognize is that. Built into, and you might argue with me about this, but I would say built into um, almost every religion, wherever there is some measurement of growth, wherever there is some uh, expression of um, the importance of devotion, you know, Christianity has to do with leaving everything behind to follow Christ. Cutting off your right hand if it offends you, that type of thing. Mm
2: -hmm. Wherever
0: that is celebrated, wherever there are martyrs, there will be an impulse for zealous people to say, we can do more. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in that context, in that religious context, it's very difficult for moderating voices to gain the floor. In other words, nobody wants to be the person that stands up and says, guys, chill out don't take this so seriously <laughs> right. like you need to because what are they at that moment they are lukewarm sure
1: um hm
2: that's interesting
1: yeah i've never never thought of it that way um but i i think that is a good i mean it i think what the internet now has done is just made that louder that like oh for sure
0: ha- i mean you, have- you you bring up tiktok i did an interview with a uh reporter Who is doing a story about? It's a secular uh, publication, but doing a story about Christian TikTok and how Mm. it's blowing up and how massive it is, and how these you know young people are being rewarded by kind of taking these really strong, even abrasive stands. Mm -hmm. They're being celebrated because they're being you know bold and they're you know standing up for their faith. And I think that's also built into you know the Christian faith. We we have Fox's Book of Martyrs you know so wherever there's persecution that's an example of faithfulness mm. and so if you can do something that that actually comes across as a little strange weird or is criticized it actually affirms your sense of i'm doing the right thing i'm mm. i'm being persecuted with jesus
2: mm. well and i think there's within that too is that notion that you just talked about is wanting a platform or or needing a platform to become mm. you know quote famous for Jesus as you just said and I, I kind of want to talk about that for a second because that seems to be built into um the character of evangelicalism as well we we see it and and someone like like say Tim Tebow who is just as celebrated for, his public stance on things, as he was for his, you know, status as a as a quarterback, and I guess for me, it's the exact opposite of a more pure form of Christianity, which actually points us downward. It, it actually points us to this archetypal um, journey that Jesus took, going from a high place to a low place, going through death, um, suffering, and, I mean, frankly, an utter failure. Um, you know, I, we had someone tell us the other day, well, you know, if you're following God, your organization is going to be a success because God only blesses success. And I go, so what about Jesus? I mean, the dude failed.
0: You know, he <laughs> got the he thing got I would say there, just to give a little bit of a different perspective, no one in the world is more famous than Jesus. (laughs) And so you have to deal with the fact that even though it was quote unquote failure, number one, he rose from the dead. Number two, he is, you know, more people worship him and love him and follow him than any other person in world history. So by that standard, there's kind of this this ideal. And then you have Paul, and then you go back to the Old Testament and we have these heroes of the faith, which are celebrities whose stories people can grab hold of and mm-hmm. aspire to and be inspired by. And then you have the structure of the church, which sadly in the US is built around big personalities. So what are the right. most influential churches? They're not even denominational centers anymore. They're massive churches mm-hmm. who's, who are driven by personality and by you know the best worship music. And those are the people that Christian young people are spending at least an hour every week sitting under their teaching and what's celebrated is the ability to influence culture and have a name um so I I just think there's a lot that that pushes pushes mm-hmm. toward that
2: right mm-hmm. so so let me ask you this because you just said you wanted to run away from that so what what was maybe the the biggest turning point or the lesson that made you simply be aware of that because you've you've obviously gone into uh, anonymity uh, in, in some
0: level. I mean, it, it, how, did, how I, did you But I there? haven't really, because I'm on a podcast right now. You talking about it?
2: <laughs> yeah, but, but nobody listens. Nobody oh, knows no. who we are, yeah, so you're I fine.
0: Do. Well, no, it's an interesting thing. I mean, this is a struggle for me um, to this day, is this question of um, should I just disappear hmm. uh, in terms of any kind of public interaction? Um, or is it part of who I am as a, as a person just in my giftings and how I'm wired and what I want, um, wanting to engage with people, wanting to be in the conversation with other people, wanting to have this human connection with a broad, um, spectrum of people. And I, you know, I can kind of like judge myself based on old Christian standards of like, oh my gosh, you're being you know proud and you're mm-hmm. pursuing something you shouldn't. To wait a second. If this is just part of who I am, you know, I, I have, you know, X number of years on this planet, and if I want to write books or do podcasts or you know whatever, I can do that, and I I don't have to you know be so um, ridden with with guilt and shame over that. Mm. I I think that the the issue is is that when I talk about wanting to run away from things, what I wanted to run away from was the the pain, the psychological pain. Of dealing with the idea that the thing that I was best known for may have actually been something that was damaging and harmful. Mm. That was such a hard thing to face up to. You know, people yeah. had been talking about this on the internet. Many people for years had been critiquing my book and I had ignored them and written them off as haters and <laughs> basically people who weren't serious about serving God. Mm. And so it took a lot of things falling apart in my own life for me to say, wait a second. These people aren't just hating. They're they try to apply my book. You know, they they try to do everything right, and then they experience so much pain and disappointment. And and so I started to to listen and I started to read, you know, my own writing through a different lens. And I started to see what had shaped me. I think a lot of Christians, we kind of assume when we show up on the scene that whatever it is we believe or our opinions or that. The emphasis of the day is what has always been, and right. what we we lose perspective mm-hmm. of is no, actually, that was just happening in those five years when you were fifteen years old, <laughs> 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 and there were a lot of different factors. And so, a historical, bigger picture perspective can can really, I think, um, you know, add some some nuance to your views.
1: Mm. Love that yeah. word, yeah. nuance
2: you had sort of a movement that wanted to cancel purity culture. Right. And kind of interesting. So I'm curious, we've kind of danced around this a little bit. um, And I know the word, like, what does it even mean? But do you still call yourself a Christian and what is your spirituality and faith look like these days?
0: I don't call myself a Christian, but I'm not uh, wanting to label myself uh, an agnostic or, or anything else. I, I want to be open to faith. I want to be open to different ways of viewing Christianity and engaging with Christianity. So I'm reading Christian books, theological books at times. Um, I'm engaging in conversations with people that are everywhere from, you know, atheists and very opposed to Christianity to people who are in process of deconstructing their views and evolving in different ways, progressive Christians and all kinds of people. And I I just want to stay in that place of being okay with, with not having all the answers. Mm-hmm. I love that.
1: So Josh, we want to ask you one final big question, and it's a question that we ask everyone. Um, and it might be a little different for you mm-hmm. since um, you don't, necessarily claim to be part of the Christian faith. I mean, you just said you're, you want to be open. Um, so when you look at the future of faith in general, is there anything that gives you hope?
0: Yeah, I think what gives me hope is the fact that people are able to communicate and connect and compare notes because of technology In a way that in the past they could not. And I think that that gives the opportunity for there to be more accountability to religious institutions. Um, I also think that there is this growing conversation around deconstruction, which means a lot of different things to different people. But the idea of being able to question and to take apart and examine the foundations and the the building blocks of your belief and, and not necessarily hold on to all of them, I think is a very healthy thing. Whether you're a person of faith or whether you'd say you're not a person of faith, I think that that deconstruction process and evaluating process and questioning process is tremendously helpful. I think whenever we get to a place where we say, we got it all figured out, our castle is perfect. That's usually when we say, you know what, our castle is so perfect, let's attack that other castle across the way. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and um, and I think that's where a lot of danger comes in. I, I think when we're in a place of listening and asking questions, and you know, we do this, um, we're starting a podcast called Still Unfolding. And that name, uh, my friend Kelly Lamb and I are doing this, uh, really captures this idea of, you don't have to feel the need to arrive at this perfection. Mm-hmm. All your doctrine is right. Everything's lined up. You're perfectly formed. You know whether you're an atheist or whether you're a Christian. Um, we can all be in process. And when we're in process, and when we're listening, and we're, when we're willing to question even deep things of our, you know, identity and our beliefs. It makes us open to other human beings. You know, we see the humanity of other people. We can relate to them in a way that we can't when we're so preoccupied with being right, when having, with having everything in place. And so that, that gives me hope because I see uh, people having those type of conversations. I, see, I, I have so many wonderful Christian friends that have a humble posture, who are willing to listen and to dialogue. Um, and that's the kind of community and, and conversation that I hope to be a part of.
1: Mm, mm. I love that. Okay. We're actually going to do one last thing with you. And, um, we, we didn't prepare Josh for this at all. So Josh, <laughs> we're going to ask you some rapid fire questions and you just answer as quickly as you can without thinking. Mm, okay, that sound sounds good? Good. Yeah, okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. So the first question is, is there anything we should have asked, but didn't?
0: Mm, can't think of it right now. Oh man!
2: <laughs> All right, second second rapid. What's your favorite current television show?
0: Um, I really like the show The Boys.
2: Oh, that's a good one.
0: Okay, have you seen Fleabag? I I really like Fleabag too. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's amazing! Amazing writing, yeah, unbelievable.
1: All right, third question. Are you wearing pajamas or did you actually get dressed for this interview?
0: I did get dressed for this interview, but the kind of standard uh, uniform in Vancouver with like uh, Lululemon pants and a sweatshirt Ah. is so (laughs) close to pajamas (laughs) that I'm not sure it counts. But these are not my pajamas. So, yes, I did get dressed. Awesome.
2: Uh, What's the working title for your next book?
0: Um no working title for the next book. I I'm I'm not I'm very unsure about that.
2: Gotcha. All right. So this is a a pretty benign one. If travel restrictions were lifted and you could jump on a plane today and go anywhere in the world, where would you go and why?
0: I would like to go to I'd like to go to to Hawaii because it's been a long time since I've been there and um Somewhere warm with water sounds really good.
1: (laughs) I'm with you on that one. Goodness. Uh, Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Josh. This has been really fun and really interesting hearing your perspective and what you've been through. Um, For anyone who is interested, where can they find more info about you or uh, your upcoming podcast or anything else that you're up to?
0: Yeah, um, I spend a lot of time on Instagram. So if they want to follow me there, my handle is Harris Josh. So last name first. Um, And then I also run a company called Clear and Loud, which is um, a creative agency. And they can hear about my work there as well.
1: Just clearandloud.com? Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much. We have enjoyed this time with you and we look forward to your podcast when it comes out.
0: Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Josh.
1: That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you never miss any of our episodes. We have lots of fun interviews coming up. Uh, For show notes, head to holyheretics.org. We will link to all of Josh's info there so you can find him easily, and you can also find all of our social media info there as well. In case you missed it, we do have a brand new ebook called Faith Deconstruction 101, and you can get that for free by signing up at sophiasociety.org slash ebook, and that is Sophia with a P-H. Finally, we'd like to ask you to consider supporting us on Patreon so that we can continue to bring you amazing content. We have plans in the works to bring you content that is exclusively for our Patreon supporters, as well as all our other regularly scheduled episodes, so you won't want to miss any of that. For more information on that, head to patreon.com holyheretics. This episode was written by Gary Allen Taylor and Melanie Mudge and produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith in Foxholes, and sound levels were mixed by Joshua Mudge.